Hello, everybody. I am here today with Madison and Shelby, co-founders of Double Blind Magazine, doing some really cool stuff surrounding psychedelics. So thank you so much for joining me here today, ladies. Of course. Thanks for having us. Of course. So I wanted to start out just by briefly maybe telling us a little bit about each of you and your backgrounds. Sure. So Madison and I met at Columbia Journalism School. Well, that's not quite right. We went (laughs) to Columbia Journalism School um, at the same time, but actually didn't know each other. And then we graduated and had sort of similar trajectories. We both were reporting on cannabis. And weirdly, I was doing a story for LA Weekly, and I contacted her dad, who was a cannabis attorney, Bruce Margolin, and just wanted to interview him for the story. And at the end of the interview, he said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but my daughter Madison is actually a cannabis reporter also for LA Weekly. (laughs) And she went to Columbia Journalism School at the same time as you. So I uh, looked her up on Facebook and we had a bunch of mutual friends and I said, we have to get coffee. And we did and we hit it off. And yeah, so that's sort of the beginning of how our professional relationship began. Fun. I love that story. (laughs) (laughs) You were meant to be together. Um, So tell me about Double Blind and for anybody that might not know anything about it and just your inspiration to get started. Yeah. So maybe I'll tell, I don't want to kind of to say what was going on in Shelby's head, but so Shelby and I both, like she said, have been on sort of similar trajectories covering cannabis and also sometimes psychedelics. Both of us really have a love for, I'd say like long form, deeply reported stories. And, you know, we've connected over that and Shelby and she'll probably want to elaborate or tell this on her own, but Shelby was meditating and the idea just popped into her head. Do you want it, Shelby? Is there, do you want to <laughs> say anything else about that? Yeah, that's is basically what happened. I mean, it's so funny because, you know, I guess I'll get a little philosophical here because that's just how I am. We talk about getting messages from the universe and Madison and I both sort of have one foot in the kind of new agey woo-woo world and one foot in the fact based were reporters world. And so I've never quite known whether I I really believe in this idea of of messages from the universe, but it really was, I mean, I was no joke sitting on my Zafu and it just felt like this message (laughs) beamed down from the universe and into me. And I opened up my eyes and the first thing I thought was, I got to call Madison and see if she wants to do this with me. And we had no idea how we were going to do it or how we were going to make it happen. But, but yeah, she said yes. And from there, we've just figured out the details. Yeah, I mean, I kind of see Double Blind as its own entity. That sort of, you know, if you believe in souls or something like that, like Double Blind existed and it, it kind of is channeling through us. And like when Shelby asked me back at the end of last fall or winter... I don't even know if I could have imagined like how beautiful the magazine would come out or anything like that. Like this has really just been so incredible watching this being of itself grow up and become a real life thing. And people are really excited about it. So I feel lucky that, that the idea just 
floated into Shelby's head and she shared it with me. Yeah, I love, love that story because it is actually slightly similar to how we started our podcast. I was at a concert and was just like, I need to start a cannabis podcast. (laughs) So I totally relate and I am very excited. I haven't actually... And so moving forward, what, um, why psychedelic drugs? What value did you see in them that was so important to get this magazine out? Well, gosh, (laughs) you know, it's, um, it's hard to, it's hard to articulate why I feel that psychedelics are so important Uh, because psychedelics themselves transcend words and anyone who has ever done one knows that from a reporting perspective that I knew I wanted to cover psychedelics and drug policy reform more broadly the first time that I went to a drug policy conference it was the drug policy alliances conference in Atlanta and I just realized really the conversation around drugs and medicine and how we treat our bodies, it just touches every single aspect of, of everything. I mean, psychedelics have been shown to increase our empathy towards nature. So it touches, into, it touches on this really important conversation around our current climate crisis. Of course, psychedelics and plant medicines, being that they, you know, they're working their way slowly through the FDA approval process, but being that they've been used for millennia for medicinal purposes, but haven't really been, you know, widely accepted by the Western medical community, brings up really important questions around what are we putting into our bodies and what does it mean to be well and who do we look to as the authorities on medicine and wellness in our society, And then, of course, I mean, there haven't been large numbers of people incarcerated for psychedelics the way there have been for cannabis and opioids and other drugs. But it touches on this very important conversation, too, around mass incarceration and criminal justice and who controls our minds and who controls what we put into our bodies. So really, for me, you know, psychedelics are just a way to talk about all of the most important issues that we're facing in our society now. And I just, I want to add to that is the psychedelic movement or industry is where cannabis was five, 10 years ago. And what's different, you know, what's different about psychedelics is they're far less casual than cannabis. So the way that these substances end up being decriminalized, legalized for medicinal use, talked about, taken recreationally, et cetera, the ramifications of that could be far more profound in both good and in bad ways. So to have responsible reporting around psychedelics that keeps the industry accountable, that raises questions about who has access to these medicines is going to be more and more important as the conversation really takes off. And so that was another reason that, you know, I've always been interested in covering psychedelics as a reporter. And as as a human being, I kind of see psychedelics also as sort of this intersection of like science and spirituality and the law and where they all come together. And so, you know, the mechanism by which people are getting well with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is often that they're having a quote unquote mystical experience that all of a sudden scientists are acknowledging 
spirituality in this way um, because of psychedelics. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things and what really inspires me to keep going and writing about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have a lot of other questions, but one thing I just yeah. want to add on to as well is, um, you know, Madison mentioned responsible reporting and it's always tricky. You never know as a journalist how open you're, you're really supposed to be about your own personal experiences. But I think that I have done psychedelics, obviously, and they've had a very profound impact on my life and the way that I see the world. That being said, Madison and I are really committed to abiding by all of the journalistic standards that we learned in graduate school from incredible mentors that come from newsrooms across the country. We think that it's really important that, you know, when you say that psilocybin is showing promise for treating depression, that you really look at that study and you look at who's funding it and you look at how many people were in it and that you're honest too about all the things we don't know as well as the potential risks of taking these uh, of taking these medicines because at the end of the day to come out and um, say things that are sensationalistic or to blow sort of the movement or the potential of these substances out of proportion without data, you know, I think that that, I think that that could harm, can harm the movement. And, um, and really we're, we're very committed to covering every single side of, of this topic and to listening to everyone, including people who may think that, you know, psychedelics are just the worst thing and should remain prohibited forever, you know? (laughs) Definitely. I mean, I really respect that. And that's a stance that we take as well here at the Mary Jane experience is seeing every single side and exploring the potential dark sides. You know, you can't ignore pieces of the puzzle just to make it look prettier. (laughs) Um, So I really appreciate you guys doing that. You also both touched on a ton of, of my other questions. So we'll just dive a little deeper into those. Um, one of them is is sort of on the value that they offer to society in sort of medicinal methods, like you just mentioned with curing depression. Are there, could you share with us some of the other sort of cures, potential cures that you're seeing with certain psychedelics? So there are studies now that are looking at psychedelic, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, depression, anxiety, addiction. Shelby, am I missing anything specifically? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's been so many studies. Yeah. Been studies primarily in the U.S. We're looking at psilocybin and MDMA. MDMA mm-hmm. for post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin for, for a whole range of things. But one thing that I think is important to, to clarify is that a lot of people talk about psilocybin as a cure for depression. Obviously, depression is an epidemic. There's you know, millions of people around the globe with treatment-resistant depression, meaning that you know, they've taken a couple different you know, drugs on the market that haven't worked for them. 
But really, there isn't a lot of research right now looking at psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. Compass, which is a for-profit psychedelic research company, just got breakthrough therapy status from the FDA to research uh, psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. But really, most of the data we have right now is looking at psilocybin for depression among people suffering from end-of-life distress, so people who are terminally ill. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds very also comparing to cannabis, just because that's what I know. You know, the research on all these claims that people are making is still just not quite there yet. Uh, but it is getting a lot better. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. I mean, there are also political ramifications to the concept of people getting well. So, for instance, Natalie Ginsburg from MAPS has been working on a study that looks at, like, ayahuasca for conflict resolution among Israelis and Palestinians. So when you look at the way policies or kind of socioeconomic relations are informed by trauma, by anxiety, by this sort of existential fear of, of am I going to be able to exist? Uh, a lot of people who are using psychedelics suffer from basically inherited trauma, whether you're, whether that dates back a couple of generations or, you know, several hundred years. And so being able to really reprogram your, like literally reprogram your nervous system in some ways and through psychedelics and through sort of embodied practice of breathing through the psychedelic experience can really have huge ramifications for interpersonal relationships and individual and collective wellness. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It reminds me of a book that I love by Michael Pollan. And if you haven't read it, you should, um, called How to Change Your Mind. And um, mm-hmm. it's all about taking LSD to like kind of reprogram your brain. It's really cool. Um, but another thing you mentioned a little bit earlier was psychedelics in history. And I'm curious about maybe some ways that psychedelics are used in other cultures, countries, or indigenous people, or just back in the day, um, if you have any insights on that. Psychedelics have been used for, for millennia, it appears, in regions across the globe. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. So basically there's humans and plants, I think, have always had a symbiotic relationship, right? We've seen that with cannabis. Just the fact that that, that plant has been used everywhere from the Americas to Asia, Africa, wherever. And psychedelics also, humans have been finding ways to use plants for medicine and for spirituality and the line between those two often being hazy in a ceremonial context where there's sort of an innate wisdom into how the plant, this the spirit of the plant and what that's used for. So, you know, whether it's the iboga, which comes from West Africa, you have the iboga plant from West Africa or the way people in South America figured out to combine different plants to make ayahuasca or even in the Middle East, you also have a combination of plants similar to ayahuasca called harmala or people eating the leaves of the acacia tree, which had DMT in it and is responsible for a lot of the sort of biblical prophecies. In India, people have been using hashish, which there also specifically is very strong and can be psychedelic. And it's a sacrament for a certain sect of Hindus who are devotees of the god Shiva, who's the god of mind-altering substances, basically. Um, And, you know, even in Europe and America, you've always had sort of medicine people. Sometimes they were called witches. 
Sometimes they're called shamans. It really depends on the region. And so right now society is sort you know, I guess from sort of the 50s onward, it's as if Western society had quote unquote discovered psychedelics when really, at least in plant form, these were part of humanity. That was integral part of the human experience forever. But from, I guess, from the middle of the 20th century going forward, when LSD was discovered, MDMA, there were more, there were studies, of course, at Harvard looking at psilocybin and LSD. That's where sort of the history, I think, really sort of culminates at like a, a peak where it became part of pop culture at large. And that's how the 60s got their reputation. And now I think when people talk about the psychedelic renaissance, what they're referring to is really, a, you know, scientists reappreciating these substances in a very, in a much more maybe mature and tamer way than say Timothy Leary did back in the 60s and 70s. And so not to, not to sort of, not to dis Leary at all, because I think the movement, I think the, the trajectory of the psychedelic history really needed characters like Timothy Leary to really get the word out. And, you know, everything was part of a process that leads up to itself, the whole <laughs> Timothy Leary and then the drug war and then this renaissance. I don't think we could, we would be where we are without at least that as the preface or the, the chapter before modern day. So I hope that I hope that answers your question. Um, yeah, that, that's a I, great yeah. answer. Um, and I love, you know, bringing it all the way forward to modern medicine and, and is the, are these spiritual drug experiences going to have a place in modern medicine? And when is that going to happen? If that's well, going to happen? If you think about it, modern medicine has failed us in a lot of ways. If you think about all the quote unquote treatment resistant depression or PTSD and the cocktail of pills that people are being prescribed and the opioid epidemic, you know, what we think of as medicine is as pills that the FDA sort of approves and that all these pharmaceutical companies are just creating and pushing through, that's not working. And there are, there are medicines in both organic and synthetic form that do work and that have a history of working in cultural and spiritual and medicinal context that predates the FDA or any sort of agency that would approve or, or prohibit these medicines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, has been really pushing for quite some time now to get MDMA-assisted psychotherapy on the market by 2021 for post-traumatic stress disorder. I believe that if if they succeed and they're on track to, because they also got breakthrough therapy status by the FDA, that MDMA will be able to be prescribed off-label, which means that people, not, you know, patients, not just patients with post-traumatic stress disorder will have access to it. Compass, which is the research company looking at psilocybin, is also aiming to get psilocybin on the market by 2021. So really, psychedelic medicine is right around the corner. Of course, uh, ketamine clinics are already expanding all across the country. Ketamine infusions for depression showing a lot of promise. And the FDA recently approved S-ketamine, which is a component of ketamine for depression. So this really, um, it's already happening. And I don't know about 
I mean, I don't know about other psychedelics um, and when those will be approved. I mean, the very, very first uh, FDA-approved study looking at ayahuasca is slated to get started, I don't know, in the next, probably in the next couple of years. A researcher named Liana Standish at Bastyr University has been working for the last 20 years to get that going. And as far as I know, and I could be wrong, I, I don't know of any rigorous studies trying to get LSD through the FDA approval process. The, my understanding is that LSD and psilocybin really can be used for, for a lot of the same conditions and that researchers sort of during the, the, the beginning of the psychedelic renaissance made the strategic decision to invest in psilocybin instead of LSD because it doesn't last as long <laughs> and it just takes a lot more resources to have, you know, to sit with someone for 10 to 12 hours instead of six to eight. And because of the cultural baggage that comes along with LSD. Definitely. So you're looking into the future a little bit. And I love that because we always ask um, our cannabis interviewees, their one, five and 10 year industry predictions. And I'll throw that at you. I know it's impossible to really answer, you know, accurately, but if you had a crystal ball and you just could look into the future, what do you think would happen or what would you like to happen? <laughs> um, okay. So I definitely think we're going to see more on the wave of decriminalization, at least within the year. So probably the listeners know, but Denver decriminalized psilocybin and then Oakland went one step further and decriminalized psilocybin and all entheogenic plants. <laughs> so I think that we're going to see more cities trying to do that. I know there's also decriminalized California, which is in the works. And maybe I know people in Los Angeles have been talking about it, though I don't know if it would pass immediately. So yeah, within the next year, more decrim bills. Within the next Five years, for sure, we're going to, and Shelby already alluded to this, but we're going to see most likely FDA approval of MDMA and possibly psilocybin. And then in 10 years, I don't know, that's, I, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> so far. I, so if I just want everything to be legal and decriminalized, and I want there to be an equitable, fair industry that includes everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, in 10 years, gosh, it's, it's so hard to predict, but um, Rick Doblin, who's the founder of, of MAPS, often says that um, medicalization precedes legalization. And so we've, you know, of course we have seen that with, with cannabis and I know that it's uh, sort of the dream of MAPS and a lot of um, longtime psychedelic researchers to see psychedelic clinics, as it were, all across the country where people can go and they can take psychedelics legally in a supportive setting. Oregon, there's an initiative, the Oregon Psilocybin Society. Is that what it's called, Madison? OPS? I think so. And they so. are um, they are aiming to get psilocybin legalized for medical purposes um, next year. And awesome. if that bill goes through, then there actually will be psychedelic clinics in Oregon for psilocybin. Mm -hmm. Wow! And there are already ibogaine clinics um, at diff in different parts of the world really. I don't know. Dana Beal, who's a longtime cannabis activist and now Ibogaine activist, 
has already had his hands in trying to help facilitate a clinic, hopefully in Oakland soon. Um, he's talked about a clinic in Kabor where, you know, places basically where there is a lot of opioid abuse going on. So in that, yeah. Right, right. I mean, we didn't even talk about what's happening outside of the United States, which of course, um, you know, there's, there's lots of, of psychedelic sort of retreats and things that are popping up because there are so journeys. People, right. Because there are so many people who are interested in doing this stuff now and they don't necessarily want to wait until it's legal in the United States. So we have, you know, Ibogaine clinics in Mexico. We have psilocybin retreat, a psilocybin retreat in Jamaica. Amsterdam has a just exploding psilocybin retreat slash ceremony center scene. And then of course there's all of the ayahuasca retreats that are happening in the Amazon and that will continue to grow. Very cool. So in order for legalization to happen, I guess one of the biggest issues is is sort of getting over people's fears. Um, What are some of the most common misconceptions about these drugs that maybe could change people's opinion if they were, you know, slashed? Uh, Well, I think, you know, people, I think a lot of people, for lack of a better word, have been a little bit shaken up or traumatized by the 60s in that a lot of people were taking psychedelics in dubious environments, but a lot of people, you know, it was just, it was so casual. And, you know, there's this whole rhetoric around the quote unquote bad trip. And I think people who might not have a lot of experience with psychedelics or might be scared of them might just think of, oh, you can have a bad trip and go crazy and lose your mind. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of acknowledge that like in its face, I've, you know, I've been through my own challenging trips. I've seen people end up in the psych ward, you know, after difficult psychedelic experiences. It's not, it's not a joke and it is something to be afraid of. But I think that the way that people start to even changing the rhetoric from bad trip to challenging experience or showing or basically being able to do psychedelic, start over. I think there needs to be more of a harm reduction approach in how we approach and how we talk about psychedelics and how we do psychedelics. So if the casual um, person or the casual consumer or the everyday person doesn't know that much about psychedelics, maybe they don't know about set and setting. Um, which is basically psychedelics 101. Um, make sure you're in a good headspace. Uh, you know, make sure you don't have any sort of pre-existing psychological conditions like schizophrenia that could be triggered. And make sure you're doing it with the right people. Um, the more people integrate that as a basic into doing psychedelics, I think the more people are going to have um, more, res- you know, more responsible experiences and hopefully more profound experiences. Um, but there's really a lot to um, a lot that needs to, I think, be sorry, I'm now I like what I want. You're fine. What I'm what I'm trying to say, and I'll repeat this or maybe Shelby will step in, is that like I think there needs to be like more um, intentionality around taking psychedelics and treating these substances not necessarily as party drugs, um, but as really profound uh, and theogenic plants or pills or whatever that really have the power to change your life. And when you, when you really respect them and revere them in that way, 
you're more likely to have a more intentional, maybe conscious experience, whether or not that's completely blissful or challenging or whatever. But treating them as medicines rather than as drugs or something that will make you crazy just sort of um, shifts the way people go into the experience. Definitely. And I love that. Um, And that was sort of my last question for you, but do you have anything else that you'd like to add? And it's okay if you don't. (laughs) And if you don't, then I'd love to share with listeners, um, your new magazine just came out and what they can expect to see and where they can get one. (laughs) (laughs) So we just launched, uh, was it last week? Gosh, um, I think time is moving so the, fast. The first weekend of June. <laughs> the first weekend of June, we launched um, at the World Ayahuasca Conference in Spain, which was an absolutely incredible experience. And I have to give a shout out to ICERS, the NGO that um, that facilitated that conference. Forty um, plus indigenous people from the Amazon were there talking about plant medicines absolutely amazing. And then uh, Madison was at Shakruna's Queering Psychedelics Conference in the Bay, which was the first conference highlighting queer voices in the psychedelic community. Also an amazing, amazing organization put that on, Shakruna, run by anthropologist Bia Labache. And um, so anyway, I'm I'm digressing a little bit, but I just have to give shout outs to these psychedelic allies because there's so many incredible people working in this space. Um, So we launched there at those events the first week of June. And now um, our issues are available online, our inaugural issue. And um, they'll also be available later this summer um, in various brick and mortars in major metropolitan areas, New York, LA, New Orleans. So stay tuned, check out our website for that. In August, we're going to be rolling out online content. Um, and in December, we are slated to have our second print issue. And well, you can... Fo- Thank you. Oh, you can follow along at Double Blind Mag uh, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And if, for orders, it's just doubleblindmag.com. And I'll toss links for all of this in the blog post that will come out with the podcast Congratulations on your new magazine and business. And thank you so much for joining me today, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it.